and amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, would you turn to the book of Genesis chapter 3? And then you may want to keep tabs on the book of Romans because we're going to spend a little bit of time back and forth in Romans 5 and Romans 8 as well. So uh, we've been working systematically through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. This has been just uh, such a fascinating study for me. Uh, I've been getting a lot of positive feedback. Um, overwhelmingly, there's, you can't always make everybody happy, but I think overwhelmingly most people are enjoying the study and causing you to dig deeper and, and get a better handle on why this book, the book of Genesis, the foundation of the Bible itself, is, is so, so very important, especially in today's world. And we're going to see today in Genesis 3, as we speak about the curse, the curse of creation, and all the different consequences of the curse, and how that still applies to you and me today. Everybody that walked into this room today is feeling the effects, in some way, form, or fashion, of the curse. And so it is, it is relevant, it is a reality for all of us, and the Bible has so much to say about the curse. Before we do that, before we jump in, let's stop for a moment And let's give God his rightful place as we go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are good. Your love endures forever. We are so grateful that you're full of loving kindness and mercy, full of grace. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. And so, Lord, as we open your word today, may you be the one who speaks according to your word and your spirit, according to your will. May you give us all ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to understand and believe the truth of the gospel. For it's in Jesus Christ's name we do pray. Amen. One of the things that is valuable about a Genesis study is because in the book of Genesis, and specifically these first 11 chapters that we're going to be covering over the next several months, is that the book of Genesis answers the fundamental questions of life. I don't care who you are. I don't care what kind of a belief system that you were grown up, that you grew up in or that you were raised in. I don't care what part of the world that you come from. I don't care what age or era that you came from. I don't care if you lived a thousand years ago or if you're alive on the face of the earth today, these are the fundamental questions that every single human being on the face of the earth, number one, wrestles with, whether they know it or not, we're all wrestling with these questions, and number two, we're all looking for the answers to these questions, and the book of Genesis provides the answers. And the first answer that that we provided as we looked at the number one question of of, uh, reality and, and why we're here is simply this, where did we come from? That's a fundamental question. From where do we come? Everybody wants to know, where do we come from? Well, we, we've covered that over the last several weeks, and we've looked at the creation account and man being created in the image of God, and we've talked so much in depth about God as creator, and we're made in his image, and he established a created order, and, and that he created the world in six literal days, and everything that we see around us is a product of his supernatural power of creation. So we, we've answered that question, where did we come from? And then we looked at being made as image bearers of God, is that who are we? Like, what does it even mean to be human? What is, what's different about a human as opposed to other creatures? And why are we unique in the sense that we're made in the image of God? And we talked a little bit about that over the last several weeks as well. So where did we come from? Who are we? 
And then why are we here is another big question. Like, what's this all about? What's the point? And we're going to talk a little bit about that today, but I think there's another big question that everybody wrestles with, and, and you can say it's the old philosophical problem of suffering or the old philosophical problem with evil that a lot of people wrestle and struggle with, but basically it comes down to this question right here. What in the world went wrong? Something's not right. You wake up in the morning and you, your back's hurting and you can't hardly get out of the bed, and you're like, it's not supposed to be this way, Right? And this is a fundamental question this morning that, that I want to try to help answer through the Scriptures and through what we see in Genesis 3. And we'll spend some time in the book of Romans. But, but this is a big question that, that the curse answers for us as we look at Genesis 3. And that is that question, what went wrong? Usually we begin to ask that question and we begin to become familiar with this whole idea that something has gone astray, something has gone awry when we're little bitty children. I tried to think back to my childhood and... I tried to think about some of the, the teaching lessons, the experiences that I had as a child that, that quickly told me and taught me that something was not quite right. One of them that I remember is I, you know, we lived out kind of out in the country, out from town, and we had a big open yard to play in, lots of freedom to roam, and it was wonderful. And I'm one of those old hicks from Mississippi, and I was barefooted a lot. One of the worst things in the world is when you're ready to go outside to play and you run out into the yard barefooted and you run into a patch of what? Those little stickers. Those little bee stickers in the grass. You don't see them, but they eat you up and you start jumping around and it just ruins your whole day and you've got to go put shoes on. Right? I mean, something's not right. There's not supposed to be stickers. I think about getting warmer outside, and if you saw me when I was a little kid, if you would have seen my legs, they were a banquet feast for the mosquitoes. And I itched, and I itched, and I scratched, and my legs looked horrible, and I was talking to my son Jordan, he inherited that mosquito sweet blood, I guess, that I had when I was a kid, and he's like, man, the only thing I hate about the warm time and, and springtime coming is, is, guess what's about to start coming out? Mosquitoes are coming back out. Like, it, it, we're, we lived down in the Mississippi Delta for a while, down in, in, in Tunica, Mississippi, and you can't even stay outside at night because of the mosquitoes down there. You can't even enjoy the cool evening of the day because when the mosquitoes come out, they will carry you off. <laughs> Something's not right about that. I don't think that's the way God originally intended this creation to be. I think that we were supposed to be able to enjoy the outdoors without being feasted on by these blood-sucking parasites, right? I mean, it's just terrible. I hate mosquitoes. I hate it. It's part of, the, part of the curse that I'm thankful will be removed when Jesus returns, right? No more mosquitoes. I think about the time that I, I was very young. It's one of the earliest memories, but I saw a beautiful bumblebee, and it was bright. And I thought that I needed to pick the thing up because it was beautiful, and it reminded me very quickly, something's wrong. As I screamed and ran into the house in pain because my hand was throbbing because I picked up a bumblebee as he stung me, and it was a reminder that there's a curse in creation. And all of you out there have similar experiences. As you, you walk into this room today and you think about it, it didn't take very long for us to be growing up in this world to realize that something was wrong. And that's fundamentally what is 
at stake right here when we look at Genesis chapter 3 and we look at the the consequences of sin, when we look at the the effects of the fall, if you will. And I want to share with you what some of those effects are. And so if you have your Bibles, let's look at Genesis chapter 3. And last week I introduced you to the Nakash, who is the serpent, and he's the, the arch enemy of God, the nemesis of God and his people, and he deceived the woman, and, and he led man into rebellion and sin, and basically brought death and destruction and, and, and just tra- tragic consequences that the, that the serpent um, infiltrated mankind, basically stripped him of his authority, and we, we saw, we, we, we identified who he was and why he was even in the garden to begin with, and and what his intentions are, and we, we, we did a big study on the Nakash, the serpent, the devil. He goes by many names, but he's our enemy. He's the evil one. We'll talk a little bit more about him in just a minute. But today, I, I want to I just take you through the effects that when Adam and Eve chose to listen to the serpent and deliberately disobeyed God and rejected him, there were some tragic consequences of the curse. Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to begin in verse 7. So man and and woman, Adam and Eve, they are deceived. They they take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They deliberately disobey God. Uh, They sin against the Lord. Look at what it says in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, uh, Douglas Hemp, who's a, a theologian teacher, he, he seems to believe that, there, that one, one of the things that happened, it's just an interesting side note, that, that Adam and Eve, as they were spending time in the presence of the Lord, that maybe perhaps their original bodies were somehow emanating light. Which is kind of what we see ourselves to be like in the resurrection, right? I mean, we're, our bodies are going to be transformed and glorified bodies, and maybe, maybe we'll be emanating light. You know, when you spend time around God who is the source of light, you kind of begin to reflect that, that light. So maybe their bodies were just emanating light, and the minute that they sinned against God, maybe that light began to diminish and fade. And they noticed they didn't have a covering, that they were naked. And so they tried to provide their own covering. And we'll, we'll get into more of that here in just a minute. So they sewed fig leaves on each other, and then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is tragic. They hid themselves from God. But the Lord God called to the woman, excuse me, to the man and said to him, Where are you? He knew where he was. But as a good heavenly father, even in the midst of their sin, compassion, patience, grace, he didn't come shouting accusations at them. He just simply asked them, well, what? Just ask you a question. Where are you? He said, well, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Who, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, <laughs> it's that woman that you gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the serpent, and I'm going to read this portion right here, because this is basically the pronouncement of the curse, okay? The Lord God said to the serpent first, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field, on their belly 
You shall go, and the dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring, or your seed, and her seed, because he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We're going to talk about that next week, about the seed, and there's so much in that verse 15 that is just amazing when you begin to unpack it. But let's move on to verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. Thank you, Jesus, right? Right, ladies? In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Thank you, Adam. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, and for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. And the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made Adam for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. I'll go ahead and finish the chapter. And then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, and knowing good and evil now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat for, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken, and he drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I'm sure many of you have read that passage probably multiple times and heard it preached multiple times, and I think sometimes we just seem to forget how tragic that passage really is. All the pain and all the hurt and all the abuse and all the hatred and all the anger and all the violence and all the suffering and all the sickness and all the death and everything that we're dealing with in our world and our life right now, it originated right here. And, it, and I can say it wasn't supposed to be that way. Now, it didn't take God by surprise because he had already had the cross in mind and redemption in mind is what we're going to talk about here in just a moment. But it wasn't supposed to be this way. And so we're, when we look at the effects of the curse and we look at the effects of the fall, I'm going to give you some very simple consequences that we're all aware of, but I think it's good for us to be reminded of them today. Number one, the effect is that the curse fundamentally fractured our relationship both with God and each other. So the first real consequence and the first real effect of the fall, of the, of the curse that God put on creation, is that relationships were broken. Now, I don't care who you are, but I bet you if you ask everybody in this room, what's the most important thing for you and to you in this life? And I guarantee you, almost every single one of you will say, my relationships my family, my friends, my children, my parents, my church family. It always comes back to relationships because God is a God of relationship. He desires relationship with His creatures. And the tragedy of the fall and the effect of the curse is that our vertical relationship with God was broken. He, Adam and Eve were no longer able to freely dwell in the presence of Almighty God. They were cut off. They were cast out. If you read that language, look at what it says. They were cut off from the tree of life. They were cast out of paradise. They were cast out of the presence of God to go outside of His presence to have to work the ground and suffer the consequences of their sin. And so what did that introduce to the human race? Well, it introduced fear. 
The first thing that we see Adam and Eve doing immediately after they sin is that they're what? Hiding themselves. Hiding themselves from God. Afraid. It introduced shame. Yeah, their eyes were opened. They immediately knew something was wrong. They immediately knew they did not want to have to face God. And so they began to sow fig leaves on themselves in in order to try to cover up what they had done. But it was not sufficient. They were ashamed. They were afraid. And so this, this vertical relationship that as Jesus says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. That if you, if you love God and have this vertical relationship that is right in your life, and then you'll be able to love your neighbor as yourself. So you got vertical as priority number one, and then we can go and, and love our neighbor and have our horizontal relationships restored as well. But the wages of sin is death. And Adam and Eve experienced relational death on that day. Now, if you remember, God said, the, the moment that you eat of the tree of the knowledge and the good, of, and good and evil, you will surely what? Die. And we'll talk about that here in just a minute, about what did he really mean. Now, I have the, I have the interpretation that they should have died right then. They should have been completely just, just killed. But I'll tell you why God didn't kill them in just a minute. But I do want to tell you this thing. Adam did live 930 years. And then he what? He did die. And so will you. And so will me. So it's this relational break. It's this fracturing of a relationship with God. It's the separation that man has sought to fix since the beginning, since the very fall. It's the one that we can't fix on our own. It's the immediate loss of relationship with God. And that's why the gospel is so profound is because every other religious belief system on the face of the planet is man's attempt to restore relationship to God, but we always fall what? Short. And that's why God had to restore relationship to us by coming to us. Now, ultimately, hell in and of itself is eternal separation from God. That's what hell is. It's, it's being eternally separated. In other words, we, we no longer get to experience His presence and His blessing and His grace and His love and His goodness. In other words, hell is experiencing the, the deliberate and conscious wrath of God, His anger toward our sin. So hell has everything to do with relational fracturing, a relational break. And then you see the horizontal implications of what happened is Adam and Eve, number one, they're hiding themselves from God. They're naked and they're afraid. They're ashamed to face God. But then you start to see the blame game take place, right? Well, who told you that you were naked? Well, you know, the woman that... And and don't miss this. And by implication, it's not just that Adam was blaming his wife. He was also blaming who? He's blaming God. Hey, it was, it was the woman you gave me, God, that caused all this mess. I'm not going to take ownership of my own responsibilities. I'm, I'm going I'm to try to blame and shift the blame and cast blame on somewhere else. And then, okay, well, Eve, what, what's this all about? What, what did you do? Well, it was because of the, the serpent. He was the one that deceived me. Well, there was some truth to that. But again, she didn't take ownership for her own actions and responsibility either. And so this, this tremendous amount of blame and accusation and self-defense and insecurity, all of this is, is part of our human nature. 
tragic effect of the fall as we are fractured in our relationships with God and each other. But then there's something else at work here. The curse corrupted the very spiritual nature of mankind. Making sin... Now listen, this is, so, this is what's so sad. It made sin our inheritance and death our destiny. God said, out of the dust you were taken and to the dust you returned, you will die, Adam. And he did die. And so because of this sin and because of the curse that God put on all of creation, now we have a sinful nature that we have inherited from our parents and from our grandparents and all the way back to Adam. And then death is ultimately our destiny. So this is where we're going to spend just a little bit of time in Romans chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, flip over to Romans 5. As Paul develops this thought just a little bit more, in verse 12, look at what Paul says in, in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, remember the wages of sin, the price of sin is what? It's death. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So there's always a correlation and a connection between the fact that we sin and that death is the price or the cost or the wages for that sin. Now look at what he says in verse 18 of Romans 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. So what Paul is doing in this passage is that he's contrasting and comparing Adam's fall to Jesus' redemption. And we're going to develop that a little bit more in a minute, but it's very clear that because of Adam's trespass and his sin, is that death entered the world and that we inherited some type of a sinful nature. We were made transgressors. We were made, we were led to condemnation. That's what the Bible says. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So let's talk about this sinful nature for just a second. The Bible calls it the flesh. Walk by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. And he's talking about our sinful nature. There's something deeper going on. He's not just talking about your body, your skin. He's talking about your sinful nature. So right now, because of the, the fall of man and the curse of man, we're born inclined to sin. We're born bound to sin. Now this is what's interesting. We sin by nature... And we sin by choice. It's a both and. It's not either or. It's both and. Yes, we, we're sinners by nature, but we still have the what? The freedom to choose. And, and we also choose to sin. It's, it's, it's what's so sad about our condition. We can't help but sin. Even when we know it's wrong, we do it anyway. It's like it has this power over us. And so that's what spiritual bondage is all about. Now, I know there are people out there who still believe in this idea of the goodness of human nature. I promise you they have never had kids. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see how anybody who's ever been a parent on the face of the planet could ever believe that, that humans are born basically good. You know, it's this concept of original sin because we see it in little children. When you, you know, I love to see these little uh, cameras in the kids' rooms that they put in there at night so the parents can kind of watch over the kids and you listen to their conversation. By the way, kids, we're spying on you all the time. 
But I mean, you really kind of see them in their own element or you put them in a little, in a room and you, you do these uh, social experiments with kids where you give them toys and you give them cookies and you take stuff away and you kind of see how they act and how they react to each other. And what you see with children is that you have children who have been loved since they were born and they've been nurtured and they've even been taught right from wrong by their parents. And then all of a sudden you put them in their natural context and guess what they do? They bite, they punch. They steal, they grab, they push, they manipulate, and then when you call them out about it, they turn around and what? They lie about it. Now let me ask you a question. Who teaches a two-year-old how to steal, bite, push, and lie? Nobody had to teach them. Why? Because it's a part of who we are. We are sinners by nature. Even a child who has a good, godly example of parents in their homes who are loved and nurtured and, and they tell their children and teach them how to tell the truth and how to do what's right, it, it is inevitable for every single child that that sinful nature is eventually going to come out. In other words, we're naturals at sinning. One of my favorite movies of all time, Robert Redford, The Natural. You know, great baseball player, great movie. He was a natural at baseball. Guys, we're naturals at sinning. Nobody has to teach us how to do it. We're pretty good at it by ourselves. And so this is what we have inherited, this depraved, sinful nature from our parents who inherited it from their parents, who inherited it from their parents. So there is something going on genetically, spiritually. We're going to get into more of that as we talk about the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And there's a lot going on there. Information being passed on from the Y chromosomes of the father. And I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. But ultimately, we inherited this all the way back to Adam. Guess what? You and I today, every human on the face of the planet, we are sons and daughters of Adam. And that's why Paul makes a big deal about drawing the conclusion you are either still an image bearer of Adam and you're in Adam or you're in Christ. One or the other. I've shared that with you before. You're one of two kinds of people. Amen. So we're not born inherently good. Look, when your child is born, that child is not a clean slate. I'm sorry. It's not that we just are clean slate, you know, with the potential to do good or bad. Now, we can do good things and we can make right choices because we're still image bearers of God. But ultimately, our hearts are deceitful above all else and desperately wicked is what the Bible says. We can't even understand the, the depth of depravity of our own hearts. One of the things that God has shown me over the years is the longer I walk with Jesus and the more that I truly get to know Him and His holiness and perfection, righteousness, the more aware that I am a sinner. The more conscious that I'm a sinner. That's that sinful nature. But then there's another destiny for mankind and that's the destiny of death. The Bible says that death is our destiny. The Bible says that death is our great enemy. The Bible says that death is a tragedy. The Bible talks about the pangs of death. The Bible, the Bible talks about the sting of death. It is a sobering and dreadful reality. 
The death rate, last time I checked, I looked it up this morning, is still one to one. Did you catch that? Everybody dies. Life is short. Death is certain. So this is our new reality. This is the result of the curse, is that death entered the world through Adam, through his sin, which passed that nature onto us. Then we are all transgressors. We are all sinners. Therefore, death has passed on to all men because all of us have what? Sinned. And so again, this is just another refutation of any type of theistic evolution that God used, somehow used evolution. Because here's the thing, the reality about evolution is that it involves natural selection, the survival of a fittest, which is nothing but a bunch of death. That's all evolution is. It's a graveyard of death. And so if you try to harmonize and, re and reconcile evolution with the biblical account of creation, you have to say that God used death for millions of years before Adam. But then you read something like this in, in Romans chapter 5 that clearly says that death entered into the world through who? Through Adam. There was no death or suffering or disease or sickness before Adam and before the fall. You cannot reconcile those two things. But this is the reality in which we live now. We've been cut off from paradise. We've been cut off from the tree of life. We've been separated from God, the source of life. And we are destined to die as I've heard Brother John say so many times at a funeral that we are to go the way of all the earth. We go the way of all the earth. Indiscriminately. Now here's the thing. All of us at some point must come face to face with the sobering reality of our mortality. Everybody has to come face to face with that reality. I don't like to think about it. I'm not scared of it. It's real. But I don't like to think about it. And neither do you. And so we can push it off and pretend and ignore it. It's like the elephant in the room. But everybody in this room will die. How are you going to handle that? Number three. Here's the number three effect of the curse. The curse stripped Adam of his divine authority <clears throat> and subjected all mankind to an evil ruler. Now remember, God placed man on the earth and placed him in the garden and gave him dominion. He gave him authority on the earth and he wanted to be his ruler. So here you have the high king of heaven. He's given man who is made a little lower than the angels. He crowned him with glory and honor, as it says in Psalm chapter 8. And he said, you go and have dominion and kingship. You be my kings and queens and princes on the earth as you expand this paradise on earth. He wanted to give man this authority. And he, and he was a good king. God is a good king. But man gave it all away. Adam, Adam relinquished his authority. He relinquished his right to rule on the earth. And he, he handed it over to a, a cruel master. An evil ruler that we talked about last week. The, 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 the Satan, the devil, the deceiver of the whole world. You see, the devil works so hard, he works day and night to keep us spiritually blind, to tempt us to sin. He has this, this sense of power over us. He is this deceiver of the whole world. In Luke chapter 4, he tries to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. He says, hey, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of this because it's been handed over to me. So we know he has this authority. We know he has this power over the kingdoms to rule over the earth in his own wicked 
counterfeit kingdom. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, it says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So in some sense, the devil has the power of death. And so he's placed this veil of darkness over us and and he's always at work to keep us blinded and keep us separated in our constant state of sin and rebellion and death. Paul says it in Ephesians 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world and following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So there is a spiritual, a supernatural effect to the curse. There's a supernatural effect to the fall. It's not just the fact that our relationship with God and each other has been broken and been you know, shattered and fractured in a sense. It's not just the fact that we now have a sinful nature and this, this war is going on inside of us and now death is our destiny knocking on our door. But now we also have a, a supernatural enemy who's constantly at working around us trying to steal, kill, and destroy This is the curse, y'all. And then there's effect number four. The curse subjected the entire creation to a state of bondage to corruption. Now pick up on the language that Paul uses in Romans 8. If you have your Bibles, flip to Romans 8 because you're going to see a lot of correlation between Romans 8 and Genesis 3. Because remember, what was going on in Genesis 3? Well, you've got the image of pain that that women, mothers, will, will bear their children now in this great sense of pain in childbearing. And there would be thorns and thistles. And so it would no longer be natural to tend and work the garden where it t- toil and labor, you know, work would be good and fun and, and satisfying and fruitful, but now it's going to be hard work and all of this stuff. And then Paul is talking about that in the book of Romans chapter 8. And so look at Romans 8. I just want to read this to you because it, you're going to see the, the connection here. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits. Now he's talking about the cosmos, the entire creation. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? Those all who are direct creation of God. Those are all who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and have been given the right to be called the sons of God. So it says, for the creation was subjected to futility. Now listen, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That's God. This is the curse. He subjected the whole creation to futility. Now when did he do it? He did it here in Genesis 3. You see, the, the creation was not always like this. It was not always in the, in the state of corruption that we experience it today, but God cursed it in Genesis 3, and this is what Paul is talking about. He subjected it to futility 
in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Same language until now. So every time a woman gives birth and has has pain, a mother gives birth and experiences pain in that labor, he's saying the whole earth and the whole universe is in labor. It's having contractions. It is in pain. That's why we see, we wake up and we see that Nashville has been hit by massive tornadoes and over, what, 27, 25, 27 people lost their lives just like that because we live in this world that is corrupted. It is in pain. It is, in, it is groaning. It is writhing in contractions. And you have tornadoes and you have earthquakes and tsunamis and all of these hurricanes and all of this tragedy that's happening on the face of the earth. That's what's happening. We've been subjected to the curse. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now let's talk about this real quick. The curse subjected the entire creation, so it's universal in scope. There's not a a part of the furthest reaches of the galaxy or the the depths of any molecular cell that is not affected in some way by the curse. This is what we discovered that is called the law of entropy. It's the second law of thermodynamics to get scientific with you again. The law of entropy is 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 a proven law of nature. It's called the second law of thermodynamics that basically teaches that left in and of itself, the entire creation is always going to move from order to what? Disorder. That everything is disintegrating. That all the usable energy in the universe is running out. It's like a clock that was wound up to the very, at the very beginning, and when the clock was started, it's ticking and winding down. How do we know this? Because it's everywhere that we see in our universe. This law of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics, is it worked all around us. Everything moves from, disor- from order to disorder. We're running out of usable energy. The stars are burning out. You know our sun one day is going to burn out? We can measure this. You know the rotation of the earth on its axis is actually what? Slowing down? Which means that one day it's what? It's going to stop. We can measure this. The creation is winding down. There's many studies now that even say that the speed of light itself is slowing down. You see it in the rocks with radioactive decay. Is that even the rocks themselves are breaking down at the molecular level. Guys, this is all around us. Then you see it when you go to the garden. I tried my hand at gardening one time. And I enjoyed the planting process. And I love to eat. But you know what I didn't like too much? Chopping weeds. Because you got to do that, what, every single day. And after about a month, my, this garden that I was supposed to help my father-in-law with was a mess. Full of weeds. Why is it when you leave a garden unattended, it just grows up into this complete weed-infested 
mess. Because we're under the second law of thermodynamics that says left in and of itself, everything is going to move from order to disorder. If you don't believe me, how many of you have a sock bucket on your dryer right now? Where do the socks go? You work so hard, you pour, you pour it out and you match everything that you can do and you put the rest in the bucket back because you think that maybe that we're going to find the other half matching sock, but they never show up. They just what? They disappear. That's the law of entropy. You can spend all day organizing your kid's room. Go through everything in their closet. You color coordinate their shirts and their pants and get all their toys in a perfect place. It takes you all day to do that. You come back in there the next day and what? It's completely a disaster. Why is that? Why does it take so much work and effort for us to organize things and keep them orderly, but naturally they just seem to what? They just run away from us. That's the law of entropy. That's what we're dealing with. The worst, the worst are the Tupperware tops in the kitchen. I mean, there's never a matching top for the Tupperware. Where do those things go? I don't know. But that's what the world that we're living in. Then it comes down to our physical bodies. I'm 41 years old. So they tell me that I've seen my best years. Everybody tells me, thank you, Mr. Wayne. Everybody tells me that after 40, it's all what? It's a fascinating thing. There's something in our genetic code that after a certain age, we don't regenerate like we used to. You're growing as a young man. You get up and you peak about 25, 30. You reach 40 and all of a sudden something changes in our genetic composition where we no longer regenerate cells like we used to and eventually we get old. This is the law of thermodynamics. This is the law of entropy. This is the fact that creation is in bondage to decay. Evolution says that we're on an upward descent and we're, we're getting bit bigger, you know, better and more highly evolved. That's not reality. We're actually what? We're going the other way. We're devolving. We're degenerating as a human race. It's the exact opposite of biological evolution. We don't observe biological evolution. We are suffering this bondage. And of course, we have to work. And work is hard. Now, work is good. And work was supposed to be part of the original creation because God put the man in the garden to work. But now, it's burdensome. It's toilsome. Anybody ever tell you that work is fun probably ain't telling you the truth. Now, I had a, good, I had a man tell me one time, go find something you would do for free and then go make a living at it. That's pretty good advice. But not everybody gets to do that, do we? Sometimes we just have to make a living at whatever it is that we can do. And work is part of the curse that we live in, but it's part of the world that we live in. Now, let's look at our solution before we go. So that's the bad news. Separation from God, so, you know, broken relationships on a horizontal, on a familiar level. Then we have death as our destiny, sin as our nature, and then the devil is always at work to try to steal and kill and destroy, and, and then we're suffering in this entire creation that we're just living in this bondage to, de to decay, and we're groaning inside. The whole creation is groaning. It's like something is wrong, and, and God says, I got a solution. That's why we call it the gospel, which means the what? Good news. Four things that God did, and I'm going to finish. Number one, Jesus became a curse for us, taking our place on the cross. 
Jesus became a curse for us, taking our place on the cross. We deserve to die. Jesus died for us. Look at what it says in Galatians 3.10. It says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident no one is justified by God, before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But look at what it says in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Don't miss that. As Jesus hung on the cross, he was accursed. He said, my God, my God, Father, why have you forsaken me? He knew exactly why. He was quoting Psalm 22 to get the people's attention. But at the same time, he was accursed by God. He was forsaken in that sense by God. And so he became our substitutionary Atonement taking our place. Number two, he paid the price for our sin and he died the death that we deserve. The wages of sin is death. It costs Jesus Christ his life to take our place on the cross to pay the death penalty that we deserve. And that's why it's good news. It's because we deserve the cross. We deserve God's judgment. We deserve to die before the Lord. And Jesus took our place, paid our price, suffered our penalty, all of that. Now notice... When God took Adam and Eve, right before He cast them out of the garden, He did clothe them with what? Animal skins. I think Adam and Eve were supposed to die that day. And I think He took two probably innocent lambs. And I think the Lord slaughtered the lambs right in front of Adam and Eve and said, okay, I'm showing you now what you deserve. You deserve to, be, you deserve to die. And I'm going to kill these animals in front of you to show you how serious your sin is. And I'm going to take their skin and I'm going to put them on you so that you will be reminded every single day of your life what you did and what you deserve. But I'm going to spare you because I've got a substitute for you. You see, from the very beginning, the picture of substitutionary atonement was pictured in the garden as Adam and Eve were clothed with the skins of the animal. 1 John 3 8 says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus destroyed the works for the devil. So no longer does the devil have power and authority over us. Now listen, he is still operating in the world today, but he will one day be crushed. When Jesus Christ returns, the devil will be crushed and there will be no more enemy eventually. Now I know we're still in the game right now, so to speak, but there is a coming a day when there will be no more devil. And then lastly, He promised to redeem all of creation. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. Think about Jesus nailed to a cross, hanging on the tree. What was He wearing on His head? crown of thorns. Don't you know he was thinking about Genesis 3? Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam, for now there will be thorns and thistles and you will toil and you will work the ground and in your labor, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your bread. And Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I'm going to wear the crown of thorns. I'm going to take on the curse of creation I'm going to be the one to die in Adam's place, in your place, in our place, if we will put our faith and our trust in Him. 
I want to read the lyrics from the song that we just sang just a minute ago, O Wondrous Cross. Listen to this. Did ever such love and sorrow pour down or thorns compose so rich a crown? Jesus took the crown of thorns in order to give us a crown of life. That's what God has done for us. Now, before we sing, I want to say this. Everybody that walked in here, and this is something I learned from Brother John. Everybody that walked in here is hurting. You may be hurting emotionally, mentally. You might be hurting financially this morning, just just in a financial bind that you can't see any way out of. You may be hurting relationally, Your home may be in a complete mess and dysfunction. You may not have a good relationship with your parents or with your children or with whoever. You might be hurting spiritually this morning. Maybe there's some sin in your life that's just really hurting you spiritually and really breaking fellowship between you and God. And you just might be hurting physically this morning. But everybody's what? Everybody in here is hurting. That's because of the curse. Now I'm going to tell you what to do. In, John, in, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, He said, Come to me, all you who are weary, burdened down, and I will give you rest. Amen. That's the hope of the gospel. We have hope in Jesus Christ because He said, you can come to me, whatever it is, whatever it is, pain you're feeling, whatever suffering that you're going through, whatever you're experiencing right now, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, it doesn't matter. Come to me. And this is a promise from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. He said, if you will come to me, I promise you, I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And you will find rest for your souls. Now, if you're here today, and you need rest from this curse, come to Jesus. Right there where you are, come to Jesus. Hit your knees right where you are. Come up here to this altar. Come talk to me if you need prayer, whatever it may be. But I'm begging you right now, don't leave this place. You entered in here hurting in some way. Don't leave this place without finding rest in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this beautiful day. I want to thank you for the hope of Jesus Christ who became a curse for us so that we might become the sons and daughters, the children of God. That you would take us from being sons and daughters of Adam in the curse, image bearers of our fallen forefather, and you would give us the image of the one true God through Jesus Christ. And that you would give us rest for our souls. So whoever is in this room today, Lord, whatever they're hurting of, I pray they would come to you in faith. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.
to dirty that you can make worthy. You wash me in mercy. I am clean. There's nothing too dirty that you can make worthy. Wash me in mercy, I am clean. Washed in the blood of your sacrifice, your blood so red can make me white. Washed in the blood of your sacrifice, your blood for red and made me white. My dirty rags are purified, I am clean. Washed in the blood of your sacrifice, your blood for red and made me white. Dirty rags are purified. I am 